as I mentioned in our prayer, today is Halloween. And the last time that October 31st fell on a Sunday was in 2010. The next time will be in 2027. And then in 2032, I want you to remember. And then in 2038. And then in 2049, when I'll be 100. And I'll remind you of that. But my hope is that long before that, Jesus will come back. And, and, and today is not only Halloween, it's also Reformation Day. So I have my choice. I can either preach on Halloween, which is becoming more aggressive within our culture, or I can regale you with wonderful stories about Martin Luther and the day he nailed 95 debating points or theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, or we could just enjoy today's text. So let's do that. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and today's text is in verses 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I'll wait for a moment for you to get there. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Aren't those great verses? Martin Luther is with Jesus now, not because he was a spark that ignited the Reformation or because he was a good man or because he was a faithful husband or because he was a loving father or because he was a towering intellect. He's with the Lord because he came to Jesus as a child. Billy Graham is with Jesus because he came to Jesus as a child. Mortimer Adler is with Jesus because he came to Jesus as a child. Norman Geisler is with Jesus because he came to Jesus as a child. You and I will one day be with Jesus because we come to him as a child. I mentioned Norman Geisler. How many of you are familiar with that name? Okay, he's spoken here a couple of times over the years. Norm died a year and a half ago. He authored, or co-authored, and I counted them up, 128 scholarly and popular books. 128. He was known as the Dean of Evangelical Philosophy. He mentored hundreds of young scholars in their work and was a resource for many thousands more. Uh, Norm and I became good friends. He was the uh, head of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I was one of the officers. And uh, in a meeting one day, when we didn't know each other that well, 
he was presiding at the, at the podium, and he turned to me to ask a question that related to bylaws or something. And I responded with uh, the answer, but coupled with kind of a joke. Not that I would ever do something like that in public, but I did. And he started to continue what he was saying and then stopped and got a grin on his face. And he turned and looked at me and smiled. And from that day on, we became good friends. <laughs> uh, he, um, as I said, men mentored many, many people. He tried twice to get me to take over the presidency of his seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I had just come here full time. Uh, he was persistent. But here's part of his story. He was born into a non-Christian family. Actually, he was born into an anti-Christian family. Anti-Christian. Uh, he did not know who Jesus was. The first time he ever went to a church when, was when his family took him to a funeral when he was nine years old. And there was a picture on the wall. And he asked mother, his mother if that was Santa Claus. It was a picture of Jesus. He didn't know the difference. At age, at that same year, at age nine, he attended a vacation Bible school uh, it, because it was in a nearby Bible teaching church in the summer. It was something to do. And that's where he heard the gospel for the first time at age nine. And you know what happened? He rejected it. <laughs> didn't want to have anything to do with it. But he liked having somewhere to go. And so he was picked up by, they had a church van. He was picked up by that church van for Sunday school. Over the next years, over 400 times. For eight years, he went to Sunday school and church. And totally rejecting the gospel, and his comment that he has, he has said this, what if the people in that church said, you know, we've picked him up 398 times. Let's just, let's just write off this kid. He's, he's beyond. But just over 400 times when he was 17 years old, that Sunday afternoon after church, he went into his room and he knelt by his bed, and he prayed. And he realized, it's all true. It's all true. Jesus is my Lord. And he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And as a result of that, the evangelical world is different today. Because of the long-term love of the people at that church for a child. I want you to... Have that sink in. The long-term love of the people at that church for a child. And I knew him well. He was not a winsome child. Okay. They were not hindrances. They were a part of the process of loving him to Jesus. When I was a child, I remember oftentimes catching my father doing something. You know what I caught him doing? I'd catch him on his knees, finishing his prayer. I'd catch him reading his Bible. 
Lots of times I'd catch him snuggling with my mom. Those things impacted me as a child. That's what parents do. Impact their children, bringing them to Jesus. Whether it's in the literal sense in Mark chapter 10, or it's in a way in which we remove hindrances, including hindrances in our lives, and love them into Jesus' arms with the truth of the gospel and his word. That is what parents do. And that is what churches are to be doing. To, uh, that's what you saw the kids going out for children's church. That's what the children's church workers are to be doing. The nursery workers are to be doing. And, and I, I, I love it when our nursery workers are engaged with the children. And I hope that if you ever volunteer in the nursery and you're holding one of those babies, that you take that time to pray for that child. Just pray over that child. That is what we want to be doing. What the Sunday school teachers faithfully do is they work with the children. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you, parents, for trying to get out of the way, removing hindrances, but yet loving your children into Jesus' arms. And that's what our passage is about. Now, in the context, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has just talked about the sanctity of marriage. By the way, Kendall's leaving with the baby right there. And my goodness, yeah, okay, take a look. That's, that's what we're about here, right there. That's adorable. Je Jesus has just talked about the sanctity of marriage, and there's no better way to love your children to Jesus than to protect your marriage. And now he talks about children and salvation. And then right after this, he's going to talk about property. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Uh, but if you think about it, marriage, children, property, our attitudes towards all three are part of kingdom living. And, and in fact, a few verses later, Jesus is going to call the disciples children. But he does so while he is contrasting the helpless, now listen, the helpless dependency of children upon the Lord with the willful dependency of the rich young ruler on his property. So that is going to be the contrast, and Lewis is, Lewis is going to take us there next week. But the main point of our text, despite everything I've said thus far, is not about children. It's about a quality that children possess. So let's take a look at the text again. Jesus says, in order to be saved, you must become like a child. What does that mean? What quality of childhood is he pointing to? And before we jump into this and examine it phrase by phrase, I want you to notice something. Hold your place in chapter 10 and look it back to chapter 9, verse 33. 933. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another, which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. He's going to take up this theme again in chapter 10. Now look at verse 36. Taking a child 
he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now look at chapter 10, verse 13. So receive the children. Chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Do you see the contrast there? They're doing exactly the opposite, directly violating his teaching. And Jesus gets angry. Verse 13, they were bringing, and, and the tense means they kept bringing the children to him so that he might touch them. And if you were to take a picture, a, a snapshot of this scene, what do you think it would look like? Well, first of all, who were they who were bringing? Well, it's obviously their parents. And you have to wonder, okay, now why have we not seen this before? Why haven't we seen parents bringing their children to Jesus before? Well, Jesus has just taught about the sanctity of marriage, right? He's clearly pro-family. And then you add to that the historical fact that Jewish parents brought their children to their rabbi for blessing on their first birthday. So these parents, I think, are saying, I want Jesus to be the one to bless my children, regardless of the birthday. I want Jesus to pray over my child. And you know what? He did. And they kept coming. The picture here is a procession of parents waiting to get in to see Jesus. So you put, put a frame around that. that. That's what I think is going on to the parents. Who are the children? Well, the word for children here refers to small child. Uh, a different word is used later in the gospel to describe the, uh, later in the chapter to describe the disciples. But the idea uh, here, here is small child. And Luke's gospel adds they were bringing even their babies. Not just bringing their babies, but even their babies. So they were carrying their babies and placing them in Jesus' arms. And if you look at verse 16, here in Mark 10, some of the children were picked up by Jesus. He took them into his arms. So the full picture, if you want to put, put, the, put the full picture together with the frame, think maybe five or six years old on down, down to toddlers, on down, down to those who can't walk yet, on down to infants, newborns. But Jesus is not only touching them, he's also blessing them. Matthew's gospel adds, children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So there's this touch of love and this touch of blessing as Jesus holds them, as he places his hands on them, as he gives a word of blessing for each one of them. What parent wouldn't want their child to be blessed by Jesus? And, and I mean, just, just take a picture of that, you know? Just get that picture in your, put that on your mental wall. Just think about what, the, my guess is that Jesus, the disciples are seeing Jesus happier than they'd ever seen him. Now, and I, I mean, don't you get this, what this was like? Um, when, when Betsy and I were praying for years about whether or not to stay in, in teaching or to come to the church full time, I had two pictures on my wall in my office, two pictures of two children in our church, uh, and the pictures were taken at their baptisms. When they were, it was actually, they were both up at Sedine Lake. Uh, at our family camp. 
And you know what changed our minds to come full-time here at the church? It was those children on that wall. It was looking at that. The lifelong investment with children. So, you, I, I identify with these verses and the, and the picture on the mental wall of what we see with Jesus here with the disciples. But I am getting ahead of the story. So let's back up. Let's back up. In verse 13 continues, but the disciples rebuked them. That is, rebuked the parents, hopefully. Hopefully not the children. The disciples felt like, hey, we're the bouncers here. We're the guys with the velvet rope uh, controlling uh, crowds, vetting who has access. We want to maximize Jesus' ministry for him. Uh, and we know that they were thinking this way because of their internal disputes about who was the greatest. They were thinking important thoughts about being important people, about uh, important positions, about important status. And from their point of view, children weren't important. The wisdom of the day would agree with that. Jewish Talmud said that spending time talking with children is a waste of time, just like getting drunk in the middle of a day. Not quite the attitude. Children were regarded as liabilities until they would grow older. Then they become assets. So what was Jesus' reaction? Verse 14, he was indignant. And I, I want to I track out that word for a little bit. The word indignant is not a common word. It's only used three times in Mark's gospel. And, and here's the observation I want to make. What makes you mad exposes your heart. What makes you mad exposes your heart. The other use of the word indignant is the second use is also in this chapter when the disciples decided uh, just a few verses later, look at verse 37, verse 37. They had said to him, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right, one on the left in your glory. This is James and John asking Jesus, one on your right, one on your left, when you come into your glory. Now look at verse 41. Hearing this, that is hearing what James and John had asked, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant. There's your priority barometer right there. They began to feel indignant because what makes you mad exposes your heart. They weren't indignant because James and John were suddenly exposed as being spiritually shallow, but because James and John got there first. They were indignant. What makes you mad exposes your heart. There's one more time when this word occurs. Mark's very last usage. If you want to turn there, you can. It's in verse, chapter 14. In chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, we read, after Jesus had, uh, Mary had anointed his, his feet with her tears and perf poured perfume on him and wiped them with her hair. And we read in verses, verse 4, but some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. 
So they were indignant. Now, if you look at the gospel, the other gospels, which disciple specifically was indignant? There's one in particular who was indignant. Which one was it? Hmm. There are other answers that are possible. The one who held the purse. Judas. He was the one who was indignant. He was the one who spoke up. And if you look, actually, the very next thing after Jesus says, let her alone, the very next thing, then Judas Iscariot went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. It's right there. What makes you mad exposes your heart. Judas resented that Jesus was anointed. He resented that he didn't have access to the money. He was indignant. And here, here's what made Jesus indignant. The disciples themselves take it upon themselves to decide that someone is not worthy of Jesus' time, of Jesus' effort, of Jesus' attention, invading their spiritual space. They're doing their own version of spiritual triage. And Jesus was having none of it. By the way, I'm just going to, a little bit of a side here. What makes you mad? What makes you mad exposes your heart. What makes you mad? What makes you indignant? <laughs> Can't tell me to wear a mask. Oh, no, Gary, you didn't say that. <laughs> I was in the store a few weeks ago, and uh, I, uh, a young man came up to me, very hesitant, and he said, sir, excuse me, do you have a mask? And I, I obviously had not read the sign on the door front well. I thought it was one of those, if you've been vaccinated, things. But no, I, I didn't. You know, I could tell this kid, the last thing in the world he wanted to do was come and approach this old guy. You know, it's just, he was, oh my. And so, no, son, I don't. I, I'm sorry, um, didn't read the sign well, patted him on the arm, probably gave him some germs, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, did, I did leave. <laughs> what I'm getting at is that there's just, there are so many things around us to fuel outrage these days. Make sure that we get mad at the right things, okay? We pick the right battles. We get indignant about things that are important because what makes you mad exposes your heart. So what does Jesus do? He is mad. He was indignant. In verse 14, he said to them, and he gave them two commands, one positive and then a strong negative, positively, permit the children to come to me. Then a very strong negative, do not hinder them. And then Jesus uses their pettiness, actually, as a teachable moment for everybody. He makes sure that they understand that there are no spiritual gatekeepers to keep us from Jesus. The only gatekeeper really is my own willful sin that keeps me from coming to Jesus and crawling up into his arms. Focus on what Jesus says in this teachable moment. In this teachable moment, he doesn't speak about his love for children, actually. He doesn't speak about parenting. 
He doesn't speak about marriage. He doesn't speak about his, the best use of ministry time. In this teachable moment, he spoke about how to receive grace, to receive God's grace. Here's the first point. In verse 14, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This is who's invited into God's kingdom. If Jesus had said the kingdom of God belongs to these, the meaning would have probably been very different. But he didn't say that. He said such as these. There's a quality here that's necessary to possess in order to be saved. And just to be clear from this text and other Others also in, in uh, Mark's gospel and the other gospels. Who is invited into God's kingdom? Everybody. God's grace exclu excludes no one. We've already seen he does not exclude prostitutes, tax collectors, Pharisees, and certainly not children. But what quality must be present for anyone to be saved? Verse 15 continues. How may I enter into God's kingdom? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it. I'm going to park here and, and talk about this verse for a, a moment because I want you to understand, first of all, how important it is and how it's set off uh, from the other verses and how we're to understand the main point of how to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus doesn't begin by saying, whoever does not receive. Instead, he introduces with words that mark off an important statement that everybody needs to hear. Truly I say to you, is Jesus' attention-getting phrase. You'll never hear Jesus say, truly I say to you, it looks like it might rain. You'll never hear him say, truly I say to you, it's time for dinner. You don't hear those kinds of things from his mouth. No, these words contain the seal of absolute truth, and you can read through the Gospels when he says, introduces statements this way, that seal of absolute truth, truly, and then the seal of authority, I say to you, he's making his point, and it's big. It's about how to enter God's kingdom. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. Now, almost all religious teachers would say the opposite. That is, a child can attain salvation as a man. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The model for salvation is not a man, but a child. But he means it this way. Not that a child can't be saved until he's a man, but a man can't be saved until he is like a child. And to be specific, these are words of comparison. He doesn't say God's kingdom belongs to children, but to such as these, in verse 14. So that we are like a child, verse 15. So what is Jesus pointing to? What quality is it about children that he is highlighting? And I'm going to begin with what he doesn't mean. And I'm going to start by saying that this, this is a passage that uh, is often pointed to as a support for infant baptism. And I, I, I'm, I'm in, injecting a theological debate here because this is one of those texts that is, point, that is uh, uh, pointed to for infant baptism while we practice believer's baptism. And for some, this may seem like an irrelevant thing to interject here, but it's very relevant to many, many parents, and it's taught throughout most of the Christian world. 
Um, many scholars say, well, this is one of those passages that points to infant baptism. Well, I mean, clearly, there's no water in this passage, right? And no one would claim, no one would claim that Jesus is doing any baptizing of babies here. But is infant baptism a valid application? That's the question from this passage. Only if you read it into the text, not from the text. Uh, it, it's, it's not there in the text. Uh, now, those who are called covenant theologians have other reasons for infant baptism, but as one of their theologians uh, admitted to me, there's no biblical case for it anywhere in the New Testament, only for believers' baptism. That is, for one to place their faith in Christ and then after that be baptized. And the, part of the reason why I mention this is not only the misapplication to baptism, but also the misunderstanding that because a child was baptized as an infant, even though they don't follow Jesus for the rest of their lives, because they were baptized as an infant, they are still somehow covered because of the infant baptism that hedges their bets about eternity. That's not true. And it's nowhere in the scriptures. So let's just take that off the table. We're just going to remove that out of the way. So back to verse 15. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. What is the particular quality that children possess? And let's also talk about what it does not mean again. Probably the most common quality that people point to and assume that Jesus is talking about is the quality of innocence. Children have innocence, and therefore we are to come to the Lord without our baggage. No. <laughs> no. First of all, the point of the gospel is we can't rewind and come to the Lord, any of us, without our baggage. We can't become innocent. That's why we need God's grace. And, and doctrinally, children do not have innocence. I'm sorry, they don't. Uh, they, they are born sinners, according to the scriptures. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me, David said. He's not saying his mother was sinning in conception, but that he was a sinner from conception. Romans 3 through 5 makes it very clear that we are all sinners in Adam. And throughout scripture, the Bible never emphasizes a child's innocence, but rather a child's immaturity and sometimes foolishness. And even though a child may not act it out, maybe they're too young to act it out, and every parent knows this, every evil impulse is already embedded in the heart of every child. If toddlers had the strength and size of adults, the way that they react when they're upset, they would destroy everything and hurt everyone who tried to care for them, right? The re there's a reason why God made them little and parents big. And thank God they grow slowly so that they can be controlled while their wills are being formed. And this is a good plan, but it's not innocence on display. I read this week, uh, some of you are familiar with the Christian satire website, the Babylon Bee. I read a headline this week, Mother, who did not believe in original sin, changes her mind. 
we're not talking about baptism. We're not talking about innocence. Some people, here's a third suggestion, suggests that children are, are unusually spiritually sensitive. They have unseared consciences and they cry over things that they've done wrong. One scholar wrote, their unseared consciences have left, their, have left them powerful moral instruments and they are utterly miserable over their sins. Well, yes and no. Sometimes yes, but more often they're utterly miserable over getting caught. Here's a fourth suggestion. Maybe Jesus is talking about the faith of a child. Maybe this is closer. But the faith of a child is sometimes just gullibility. That's why we train small children not to, not to get into cars with someone that they don't know. They don't sift through the truth claims, right? What one person said uh, correctly, I think, faith trusts in the right people. Gullibility trusts in the wrong people. Babies don't draw that kind of distinction. They're, they don't have that discernment. Their faith does not include discernment. And that's why parents are encouraged to teach our children discernment, right? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants, as to infants in Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I'm became a man, I put away those childish things. In Ephesians 4, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all things, especially into the head who is Christ. So you get the picture. Spiritually, childhood is something to grow out of spiritually, not something to aspire to spiritually. So if Jesus is not talking about faith or sensitivity or innocence or baptism or any of those things, then what is he talking about? And here's what I think is clear, and probably all of you are already there. You were probably there before we even got to the passage. It's the quality of helpless dependency. Helpless dependency. It's not a difficult point to make. I mean, the key is Jesus' word here, receive, in verse 15, to receive him. Babies can't do anything. They are absolutely, totally helpless. And what do they bring to the table? Nothing. They have no achievements. They have no degrees or knowledge to be proud of. Or, since I know grammar, I should say they have no knowledge or degrees of which to be proud. I'm proud of my grammar. Uh, they have no good works to boast of. They have no money to give. They have no fame. They have no standing with their peers on which to rely. Remember what Paul said? I was outdoing my contemporaries, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law, found blameless. But as Paul discovered, that's not an asset. That was a liability. When Jesus came to him, he didn't come to Jesus. When Jesus came to him, he had to get over himself. And he did, immediately. Apart, here's the deal. Apart from receiving everything, apart from having everything done for them, apart from outside help, they cannot survive. They die. 
This kind of dependency, helpless, absolute dependency, has no problem receiving grace. And that's what we are to do, to receive his grace, bringing nothing to the table. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I mean, just look at him doing that. Placing his hands on each one individually, blessing them, having them in his arms. Wow. So this is our Halloween or Reformation Day salvation passage. There are several applications that I think we have to take home with this. Obviously, don't be what the disciples are in this. Don't be the bullies. Those who are in the way of those who need access to Jesus. Again, what makes you mad? What makes you indignant? Are your priorities and your life aligned with the priorities of Jesus? Do you love what Jesus loves? Are you mad at what makes Jesus mad? Make sure that you're not a roadblock or a stumbling block. We're to be salt and light. We've been talking about this for weeks. We're to be salt and light. Showing forth the love and grace of Jesus to those around us. A second application here, I think, is is for parents. For parents to do exactly what we see in this passage. Create opportunities in the spiritual way for your children to be touched by Jesus. No matter what the obstacles. And I will promise you, our culture... From our culture will emerge many obstacles that will conflict with your desire to have your children touched by Jesus. Many things will come up. And remember, you're the parents. (laughs) You're the parents. So make sure that those things are removed as much as you possibly can. And um, obviously... If you want to love what Jesus loves, Jesus is in love with the church, the bride of Christ, his bride. Ephesians chapter 4 makes that clear. So if you want to love what Jesus loves, if you want to teach them, and if you want to have Jesus' means of, uh, of fellowship and fulfillment of the one another's a part of their lives, make sure that they are a part of a church, of your church. Make sure that they are engaged. We've got Sunday school down there. Great, great stuff. Wonderful teachers. We've got, we've got things in which the kids can partake in order to come alongside parents. We don't substitute for the parents. The parents have the main role here, but we come alongside you and support you in bringing your children to Jesus. That's what God has called all of us to do. Reinforce what you do, and, and I, I do want to say one more time, those of you who are engaged in ministry to children, whether it's teaching Sunday school or working in nursery from time to time, thank you. And when you do it, pray over those children. Pray that they're, they're our kids. They're ours. So, the application for the parents, the application for workers, But the application for all of us is never to forget how we come to Jesus. We come to him like small children. We bring nothing. 
We have no achievements. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying to him, Lord, we have no achievements that commend us to you. There are no degrees, no knowledge that we bring to you. Are we going to bring knowledge and degrees to omniscience? We have no good works to boast about. Salvation is a gift to be received with empty hands. We have no there's no pride in ourselves. Lord, I've, I've been at church for 50 years without missing a single Sunday. And the Lord says, well, so have I. We, we, there's no money that we can give to the creator and the owner of all things that will give him a leg up. Right? Nobody in heaven is going to be singing, I did it my way. Nobody will be saying, Lord, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that that's going to impress God somehow. We come to Jesus empty, like children, utterly helpless to save ourselves. And after we are saved, we are to grow as Christians. But we're never to outgrow the sense of absolute dependency on Jesus. What we do receive from Jesus and our utter helplessness. I want you to think about this. We'll close with this. What we do receive is his touch. Touch is an important way God describes his loving care. When Jesus healed, what did he do? He touched them. He touched the lepers who were untouchable. He let prostitutes wash his feet with their tears and touch him. Do you remember what John calls believers in his epistles? My little children... My little children. So when we see Jesus touching babies and we see Jesus touching children and holding them, we see God doing what God does. And I want you to think about the fact that God touches because from the beginning of existence and time, the creation is described as the work of his fingertips. And then at the end of creation and time as we know it, we will stand in his presence and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Lord, I thank you that we can receive your touch in this way. Father, forgive us for carrying around baggage that's too heavy for us to bear while running into your arms openly and gladly. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us be rid of any pretension that says we bring anything to you other than the sins for which we must be forgiven. Thank you for opening your arms wide to receive us when we receive you. We pray this in Jesus' name.